the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. To bring back to the show, it's also a privilege and an honor, Professor Charles Kessler from Claremont McKenna College. He's also the editor of the Claremont Review of Books with its brand new issue just out, which is a great occasion to talk with him. He is among um, he is the author of among uh, uh, of many books, among them most recently a book that explains everything. It's the finest uh, political book I've read in at least a decade: Crisis of the Two Constitutions. The Rise, Decline, and Recovery of American Greatness. My teacher, Charles Kessler, how are you, sir? Well, Seth, I'm, I'm always delighted to hear that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've earned it. <laughs> you've earned it. You've earned, yeah. I'm, I'm flattered and delighted, and, uh, and as usual, I'm delighted to be here with you. Great having you. Great having you, and great having the new issue of the Claremont Review of Books as well. It gets into a bunch of stuff, particularly your opening, um, your opening uh, letters, uh, uh, editor, editor's, uh, editor's essay, which I want to talk about in a moment. Before I get into all of that, I've been doing something, Charles, if I might. I've been doing something with uh, public intellectuals, conservative public intellectuals on my show lately, kind of interesting for the audience, asking them a little bit of their, just a little bit of their political autobiography, if you will. If you weren't raised or if you weren't always a conservative what brought you there and if you always were what gave you those instincts and and origins what's the origin story of your conservatism i suppose is the way to put it um well uh, it's fairly straightforward in my case because uh, i i think i always was a conservative or something like a conservative my earliest political memories are of the uh, 1968 election oh, wow. campaign, okay. Okay. and uh, and so I, I I imagine I was suffering from a certain uh, uh, you know as a result of seeing on television uh, the riots of of the of 1968 and before and afterwards and uh, the general social decomposition of the of the uh, middle to late 1960s. That must have must have propelled me rightward. Uh-huh. Um, I remember uh, at the time I could I can remember hearing Nixon speak and George Wallace and Hubert Humphrey, uh, among others, um, and and uh, being sort of um, um, I guess uh, attracted to, to Nixon, or at least finding him the, the best of the, the three, easily yeah, the best sure. of the three, on offer yeah. uh, in the 1968 um, election. There was a kind of uh, of uh, progressive phobia, perhaps that that affected me uh, as a result of, of watching the 60s. I had no, no no part in the 60s, so to speak. Uh, I mean, I was a uh, uh, what was I? I was probably eleven or twelve years old at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I know I was uh, repelled by almost uh, well by most of it. Um, 
and uh, and therefore, uh, for me, it was uh, my politics sort of came out of those um, disorderly feelings. I think, um, but I did. I I liked uh, very much also the. Uh, I was a big fan of the space program and mm-hmm. of um, science fiction like uh, uh, Star Trek, mm-hmm. which was. Uh, you know, began I think in '66 or uh, or so, and so it was its short three-year run, <clears throat> followed by innumerable innumerable sequels. Of course, that <laughs> um, came in those years, um, and uh, and there was a kind of there was a sort of new frontier optimism yeah. um, alongside the uh, um, pessimism one felt at looking at national affairs. You um. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think your first public piece of writing was about your graduation ceremony, watching Alexander Solzhenitsyn give you the commencement speech at Harvard. Do I have that right? Uh, more or less, yeah. My first published piece uh, in um, uh, under my name okay. in National Review okay. was uh, my retrospective on the commencement from that June. Okay, so just backward of that, or in front of that, if I might, did Harvard, being at Harvard as a student, as an undergrad, did it challenge your conservatism, or did it reinforce it, or was that kind of campus or the surrounding campus activism and the intellectual leftism irrelevant to your to your to your career there? Um, no, it wasn't irrelevant. I mean, it was kind of um, you know in the seventies, um, Harvard was a great place to be, uh, both because of the, <clears throat> the the people who were teaching there at the time, but their quality and uh, their uh, openness to debate. Um, but also, in just in general, um, uh, it was the seventies were a good time for uh, political freedom and uh, and 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 for robust discussion, uh, and also very good humored for the most part. Okay, um, this is when uh, the original Saturday Night Live began. Yeah, you know, and yeah. when all those wonderful oh. uh, uh, movies. Uh, uh, by uh, um, <laughs> well, you had Spielberg, you had Lucas. I mean, these. these well, it was probably exactly. slaking all your science fiction thirst. And you had the Blazing Saddles yes. and Young Frankenstein. <laughs> yes, a little Woody Allen <laughs> <And> back <laughs> when you could talk about him. The yeah. name I was looking yeah. for. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Uh, so it was a very irreverent uh, decade in a way. So. For me, I took a lot of. Um, I did have Harvey Mansfield, uh, and uh, and there were other good, I mean, great conservatives on the faculty at the time. So in that sense, I was my timing was perfect. So James Q. Wilson was teaching. Yeah. Uh, Ed Banfield, his teacher, was still on the faculty at Harvard at the time. Sam Huntington was teaching. Oh yeah, that's a uh, feast. And there were one or two others I could I could name whom I took courses with and who were on the you know on the right side of things more or less. Yeah. Uh, but who were certainly extremely uh, uh, smart and serious about uh, politics and uh, and uh, philosophy and morality. Um, but it's also true that uh, the the Crimson was, you know, pretty relentlessly liberal back then, and that I took 
I majored in social studies, which was one of the probably the most leftist major. Oh, is that right? Uh, on, is that on right? campus? Okay. So, so I had to read. You know, among, I'll, I'll give you an indication of yeah. how leftist. Yeah. We had to read nine weeks of Karl Marx in the fall semester of uh, the social studies sophomore tutorial. Uh, as a and, blueprint rather than as a warning, I assume. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe a mixture. Okay. Uh, because right. they, were, they, were, they were, you know, socialist critics of uh, Marx. Yeah, too, sure. Uh, teaching at the time. Yeah. I mean, interesting people like, uh, you know. Uh, 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 I wonder if Martin Peretz was one of them. Well, Marty Paris was one of them, uh-huh. uh, although I didn't take him. But okay. he, he he was one of the founders, I believe, of the social studies major. Michael Walzer, the name I was searching for. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. It was another one. Uh, I mean, these are serious people, um, and no doubt about their commitment to free speech, as, uh, as we would put it um, today. There, were, there would have been no marches or protests to get some of those conservative faculty members you mentioned, the Banfields, the Wilsons, fired or, lose, or, or removed from campus or anything like that. Well, uh, or, were, or were there? There were. I oh. mean, um, oh. poor Ed Banfield, after he wrote one of his greatest books, uh, The Unheavenly City, yeah. right. <laughs> back in, I think that was 72 or 74 or something like that, and then he wrote a sequel to it a, uh, a year or two later called The Unheavenly City Revisited, mm-hmm. both classics, um, what became the campaign of a, of a small group of sort of a really in, in, almost one person uh, of, of fanatics who would come into his classes and sh- and sort of shout and denounce him and interrupt him, uh-huh. prevent the class uh-huh. from happening. Uh-huh. And, uh, and the, uh, despite his protest, the Harvard administration did nothing. Wow. Uh, and so he, in a, in, as you might imagine, in some indignation, left Harvard and moved to the University of Pennsylvania, uh-huh. where he also had a full professorship uh, to teach. And the, and the person or persons followed him and did exactly the same thing at, at UPenn that they'd done at Harvard. Oh, wow. And so, and so a year or two later, he, he with James Q. Wilson's help, uh, who may have been the chairman of the Gov Department at that time, Banfield beat a hasty retreat to Harvard. Uh-huh. Um, Interesting. And, uh, and so, it, it, but that was the, uh, as far as I know, the only instance Interesting. of that kind of persecution. It was worse, I guess. I, I got to take a quick commercial break. I guess it was worse at Cornell. Let me pick up on that, and then we'll get to the CR, but the new issue of the Claremont Review of Books when we come right back. Charles Kessler is our guest. ClaremontReviewofBooks.com if you want to read or subscribe to this fantastic, most important of journals. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to have Professor Charles Kessler with us, author of several books. Uh, most recently, one of the finest books uh, you will read, Crisis of the Two Constitutions, The Rise, Decline, and Recovery of American Greatness. It's uh, giving time, Hanukkah, Christmas. Um, nothing better than to give someone some intelligence. This would be a great thing to give them. Or a subscription to the magazine he is the editor of, which is the Claremont Review of Books, the new issue just out. Charles, um, if I might, uh, the um, the new issue, you always have a wonderful uh, and provocative introductory essay. This one is, is the red wave reconsidered. There was a red wave. Uh, tell us the red wave you saw. 
yes, that, the strange thing, I mean, of course, the, the most common comment about uh, the midterm elections was what happened to the red right. wave? Weren't we supposed to have this enormous tidal wave that, that would uh, shift the underlying um, landscape of our politics? And uh, my answer is, well, we did, but it was unfortunately confined to one state, yeah. namely Florida. Yeah. And um, one can go, one can spend your time asking the question, you know, the nagging question, what happened to the red wave in the 49 other states? Right. Or one could ask the flip question, which is, what did the Republicans get right in Florida? Why did the red wave roll so thunderously in Florida, but nowhere else? And I think that's uh, in, in some ways the more urgent question and the more important question. And uh, if, if you look at it, um, it, the answer the answer is not simple, but it's um, uh, at least one part of the answer is pretty clear, and that is that uh, you know in the in the statecraft, as it were, of Ron DeSantis. Um, I mean, he in his victory speech, he more or less made this argument: Florida was different from all the other states in that it was so uh, courageously anti woke. Mm-hmm. Um, it it fought back on the COVID mandates and masks, the shutting of classrooms, the ridiculous uh, regulations on business, uh, as well as on other aspects of the <clears throat> woke agenda. Uh, and one of the few states, even one of the few red states, that was really very good on the question, as consistent as one could be under the trying circumstances of the time. And uh, as a result of that and no state income tax and a few other favorable things, millions of people have moved into Florida. It's become a much redder state. It's no longer really a swing state. It has swung uh, into being a, a reliable red state. And that's exactly what the red wave was about, really, that, you know, this kind of political revolution that we thought would sweep the country. Well, <laughs> It didn't sweep the country, but it swept a very important part of the country. And a very diverse state. People don't realize it. I mean, it might even be more diverse than New York. I think it is, actually. I think it is, racially, ethnically. I mean, it has, uh, I suppose, little Havana. It also has little New York. Yeah. It does. I mean, it it does. No, absolutely. In in microcosm, there is a New York there. (laughs) Palm Beach County and and not just Palm Beach County. That's right. so you've got um, um, it is a very interesting terrain. I mean, there's a little bit of everything um, in America, in Florida. Yeah. And and Republicans ought to be spending more time than they seem to be thinking about what Ron Santos has done correctly down there and trying to emulate that. I, I love the diagnosis. Uh, my old boss and your old friend Jack Kemp once told the story when he became Secretary of Housing, Urban Development. Uh, on his first day in office, uh, some of the old appointees, not appointees, some of the old staff, uh, the non-political appointees were telling him about the reports that were coming in and they were just finishing one on that uh, the previous uh, secretary had commissioned on the causes of poverty. And he said, kill it. I don't want it. Not interested. Go get me a study on the causes of wealth. Uh, it, 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 it's basically the same orientation, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I don't, I, no, that's right. Yeah, we know how to, we know how to be poor. Now we maybe know how to lose a little more too, but we really ought to be studying how to win. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. And uh, and Florida is also interesting because it's the home 
of uh, Mar-a-Lago right. and of uh, and of uh, you know Donald Trump yep. because uh, he can take some of the credit for the uh, political change in Florida. I mean, he won it uh, outright much faster than anyone thought he could have won it on the night of the election in 2016. He won it by significantly bigger numbers in 2020. Yeah. So the process of um, you know, uh, I think eighteen points or twenty points further. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was it was it was a big, damn deal what he did. The, the move yeah. to the you know yeah. the red shift, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if I may speak astronomically for a moment, <laughs> the the red shift was already well underway before um, DeSantis won, and in fact, uh, DeSantis won in part because Trump helped him in his first sure. set of elections. Sure. But in the second set of elections. Um, DeSantis certainly stood on his own. Right. He had a record, uh, and he's. <clears throat> it seems to me right now he is sort of the Ronald Reagan of the next Republican cycle. Yep. He is a Reagan was a very successful two-term governor of California. Yep. A lot of policy victories under his belt, uh, and uh, we hope that DeSantis will be a successful two-term governor. Uh, Florida, he's been a very successful one-term governor yeah. so far. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it it raises a question. I hope my audience isn't tired of, but I'm I'm just I'm I'm bewitched by, uh, which is this: take Florida out of it for a moment. Let's talk about some of the other forty-nine. Uh, Charles, uh, you look at how you look at the John Fetterman win in Pennsylvania. You look at the Raphael Warnock. When uh, in Georgia, some others are we are we making do, do conservatives err? My thesis is yes, but it's it's only it's only tenuously held by me. Do we err by saying this is still a center right country? I'm just not convinced we still are. People argue with me on this. They may be right, but it bothers me to no end. And I wonder what your thought on that might be. Um, it's a tough question. I I would say we're less of a center-right country yeah. than we were 10 years ago okay. or 20 years ago. Okay. Um, and the question is, you know, uh, have we declined out of the center-right category? Uh, we're moving out of it. That's the direction. That is the direction you see. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm not sure we're out of it quite yet. Uh, in a way, you're asking, um, you know, how much common sense is left yeah. in the American yeah. electorate. That's exactly what I'm uh, asking. Yeah. And it's 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 hard to know until it manifests uh, itself. I, um, I have to take a quick. Com- a- uh, yeah. Let me take a quick commercial break and give you the full the full uh, the full next segment on this. Um, I, interestingly enough, I to me, it's interesting I, I, to me, to you. It's probably obvious. But I was looking over um, popular votes of the last well, of the elections for president since Ronald Reagan. You know, our last two Republican presidents first term, they lost the popular vote. Their first term uh, uh, victories, uh, Bush and Trump, they did not get the popular vote. We haven't seen popular vote victories like we did with Ronald Reagan in either 80 or. 84. Uh, well, let's pick up on this when we come right back. Charles Kessler is our guest. The new issue of the Claremont Review of Books is out, claremontreviewofbooks.com. You can look at uh, claremont.org for everything the Fine Institute uh, does. Privileged to be a fellow there. And uh, we'll come back on all of this when we come right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Charles Kessler is our guest. Professor Kessler is the editor of the Claremont Review of Books. Brand spanking new issue just out. Essays by him. And, of course, um, a lot of names you'll be familiar with. Guests we have here often. Uh, Alan Gelzo, Christopher Caldwell, Charles Murray. Uh, you got uh, Teddy Troy in there. You've got uh, just it's fantastic. Myron Magnet. Fantastic issue, as always, Charles. Congratulations on it. Um, Thank you. Thanks very you much. Bet. You bet. So we were pursuing this question of the, the 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 tilt America is in right now. It seems to be more to the port, right? Port side, more uh, well, liberal. Well, yes. I mean, yes. I, 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 it depends on what you mean. Okay. I mean, certainly the the ideolo- the tilt of the uh, uh, establishment. Uh, is further and further left, yeah. and um, of the, you know, of the uh, policy making, um, or at least the policy proclaiming parts of the Democratic Party, further and further left. No doubt about that. Uh, but there's, I think, there's gathering evidence that uh, even the the main body of the Democratic Party is not prepared to go as far to the left as their elites are. Hmm. Um, and that uh, certainly the mainstream of American politics is uh, uh, is not uh, on board with the uh, you know revolutionary march to the left <laughs> yeah. that uh, that so many in the Democratic Party would like to execute yeah. uh, these days, uh, and and that's uh, you know the, there is good news for the Republicans in the midterm results. Oh. Um, above all, that the total number of Republican votes, the popular votes you were referring oh, to, oh yes, right, was up. Yeah, I mean, we got a million more votes than the Democrats did yeah. in a year in which the Democrats did extremely well. Yeah, um, in these tight races, so that's uh, that was uh, sobering news for the Republicans, but but it's good news, uh, I think, for twenty twenty four that uh, there's still a lot of, uh, of uh, Republican passion and engagement out there, and that it's, it seems at least to have uh, to be building, not uh, declining, and that Republican margins in many of the races that they won across the country in House races, for example, Republican margins are up, uh, Democratic margins are down. So it's, uh, this is not inconsistent with the view that 2024 might be a uh, pleasant surprise for the Republicans and a big disappointment for the Democrats. I think for something like six years, I was used to taking assignments from you. But if I might be uh, so uh, vainglorious as to offer one for you, offer one to you, maybe your next opening essay um, for the next issue of the CRB uh, might be uh, addressed to um, Kevin McCarthy or, or, or the House Republicans. Uh, a victory if you can keep it, uh, perhaps, might be a good title for it. Uh, that sounds yes, like right. a little bit what you're talking about, though, isn't it? It's a victory if we can keep it. Yes, right. We, I mean, we, we do have to win it yeah. <laughs> first. Yeah. Then, we can, then we can keep it, okay. but we've got to win it first. <laughs> so uh, uh, I'm, I'm, prepared, I'm prepared to... Uh, dedicate the opening essays for the next couple of issues to this thing. Good. You know, I do on that, on the culture of the Democratic Party, the culture of the elites, kind of interesting. I was saying to a friend of mine the other day, you know, you think about 
all the places that are in the grips of liberal leftism, whether it's, you know, entertainment and news, uh, the university system, really all of academia, elementary, secondary included, now professional sports, the American Corporation and C-Suite, maybe even the Department of Defense at this point. It's amazing we win victories any, yeah. anywhere in a sense, isn't it? Uh, it's amazing. No, but that does go to, I guess, what yeah. you're saying is a residual common sense that still pushes back. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is uh, in some ways it's a kind of, uh, you know, court party versus country party. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sort of uh, old, you know, to use those old British terms mm-hmm. from the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, uh, culturally, that sort of is the division. You know, you have these enclaves of cities, coastal cities, mostly, uh, that are red, intensely red. And I'm intensely blue. Yeah, sorry, yeah. I, I can't get used to the, the switch. It used to be the other oh, way around. It used to be. Yeah, the, yeah naturally, yeah. it used yeah. to be the other way. Around. Yeah. Uh, uh, but in vast oceans of red surrounding them, um, you know, in the uh, inland of these coastal cities. Uh, and that that's sort of the, the lay of the land right now. Is California gone? Um. California is uh, going, okay. <laughs> going, but not yet gone. Okay, <laughs> I think. Uh, that could be another essay title. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, okay. It's still got some uh, potential for a comeback, but boy, we're so we're so far down that it it will take uh, some combination of uh, of uh, you know political earthquake with. Uh, you know, an uncommonly smart uh, cadre of Republican politicians to bring it back. Yeah, if you're sitting from where I am, I have to say, you know, I was looking at the recall election, Larry Elder versus Newsom, and I and I have to tell you, I just it, it blew me away uh, the size of the defeat that La- I thought Larry might win. Uh, the size of the defeat blew me away. There's this old French phrase, nostalgia de la boue. I'm probably mispronouncing it, but this. This, this this desire to live in the mud, this this desire to, to live in squalor. And I just wondered if that's what's gripped California, uh, I, you know, or gripping it. Well, it's, uh, I mean, there are many causes for California's maladies. Um, too many to go, too okay. many yes. to go okay. into, uh, today. But, but uh, it's, uh, you know, when you have both Silicon Valley and Hollywood in the same state. Yeah, uh, yeah. It uh, it affects your mind yeah. and the way you think about yeah. reality. Yeah, much yeah. less politics. Well, Char- uh, and I think that that's hard to overcome. Well, Charles, um, thank you for your time, your scholarship, your teaching, your friendship. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for this great new issue. Again, the new issue, the Claremont Review of Books, the occasion of our discussion. ClaremontReviewofBooks.com. The institute is uh, Claremont.org, and he is Professor Charles Kessler. And again, the name of his most recent book, which is, uh, I I just can't say enough good things about, especially if you're looking for a good holiday gift, Christmas or Hanukkah gift, Crisis of the Two Constitutions, The Rise, Decline, and Recovery of American Greatness. Charles Kessler, thank you, sir. Thank you. Always a great pleasure to be on the Seth Liebson Show. Thank you, sir. Delighted to have you. I'm Seth Liebson, and we will be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. If you're concerned with stock market volatility, especially with Joe Biden in office, why refi has an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return not correlated to the stock market. It's a portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises. You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose, and there's no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. The interest is compounded daily. You're paid monthly. There are no fees. It's a secure collateralized, an investment in a secure collateralized portfolio that delivers an up to 10.25% rate of return. That's right, 10 and a quarter percent. A due diligence approved firm. You can check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then R E F Y.com. Or you can call them at 888 YREFI34. That's 888 YREFI34. Thirty-four. They're great guys, uh, based locally. You can visit with them, and uh, they love talking about what they do. No sales pitch. They leave that to the aforementioned Larry Elder and myself. Speaking of uh, president, uh, presidential elections, uh, I love the. I just love the the tone of uh, something Scott Johnson wrote at Powerline today. An open letter to President Biden. Dear President Biden, I understand you are deliberating with your family over a run for re-election as president. Speaking from outside the family, I'd like to share a few thoughts with you. The day you were sworn in, you were older than Ronald Reagan the day he left office after two terms. Hey, the job is keeping you young. You're an inspiration to nursing home residents across the United States. You make 80 look like the new 98, Jimmy Carter's age. Go for it. As Carter himself might put it, why not the oldest? You are historically unpopular, so it's good that you have found effective rhetoric to disparage your opponents. Ultra-maga, semi-fascist, this is brilliant stuff. I'm sure your advisors will find more where that came from. It is good you have sought the advice of your family. Dr. Jill Biden has promised to keep steering you in the right direction, literally, as you seek to depart the stage from your various speaking engagements. And Hunter says you owe it to him to remain in office until all the statutes of limitations have run on the offenses with which he might otherwise be charged. He is the smartest guy you have ever met. I know you won't let him down after all he has done for you. You're just that kind of big guy, if I may borrow a phrase. The personal is political, as we used to say back when you might have been a football star at the University of Delaware or the smartest plagiarist in your law school class at University of Syracuse. If only you were smart enough not to have gotten caught. I know certain of your advisors and speechwriters have compared you with Franklin Roosevelt in your aspirations and accomplishments. I understand your life expectancy at age 80 is 7.0 years. If I calculate correctly, you would be 86 at the end of your second term. You would be cutting it a little close. If things don't work out for you, you might be the first president to die in office of natural causes since FDR, which would put an exclamation point on the FDR-Biden thing. Think of it as an upside of a downside. However, FDR had the good graces to substitute Harry Truman as his vice president for Henry Wallace before running for his fourth term. You may want to spend some time looking for a Truman-esque figure in your party to be your 2024 running mate before you make your final decision. If worse comes to worse, as you scour the landscape, landscape for a sane Democrat, you can always use the Jack Benny line. I'm thinking it over. Do you remember where that Jack Benny line came from? Yeah, he was a famous comedian, and uh, 
and uh, a tremendously underrated, very gifted uh, violin player. Sometimes he would bring the violin out as part of his act. I suppose the way, in a sense, Steve Martin might have once used the banjo in his stand-up routines. Does he still? He doesn't really do much stand-up anymore. But in any event, uh, Jack Benny... um, Jack Benny was also famously, or at least part of his shtick was being famously stingy, you know, really, really stingy. And he told the story of he was so stingy, a uh, a, uh, a a robber came up to him once on the street with a pointed a gun at him and said, "Your money or your life." And Jack Benny didn't say anything, and the criminal said, "Did you hear me? Your money or your life?" And Jack Benny said, "I heard you. I'm thinking it over." Anyway, do we have do we have a break here? I got to take. I think I do. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Great. Thanks. Um, yeah. This 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 issue of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. It is one to worry about. I don't know if people remember Henry Wallace very much. Um, he was uh, Franklin Roosevelt's penultimate uh, vice president before he did replace him with Harry Truman, and thank God he did. Because uh, Henry Wallace was uh, the Bernie Sanders of the 1940s, really an avowed socialist, Uh, didn't make much bones about it. I think he preferred at that time the word progressive. But in time, he would call himself a socialist. He became even too much for Franklin Roosevelt. Can you think about how different the world would have been? And I don't think there's probably... Mutatis mutandis, a policy Henry Wallace would have embraced that Kamala Harris doesn't. And that's what we're left with. So, you know, all that talk about the 25th Amendment being used against Trump throughout his four years of presidency, I was wondering if there was going to be talk about it with regard to Biden and all his missteps and addled addled, uh, promulgations. Uh, But I'm in a way also glad we're tamping it down because you get Kamala Harris without him. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Gold has been used as money for nearly 3,000 years, and it still remains a common-sense investment that's simple and straightforward. You don't need pushy commission salespeople to tell you why you should buy gold. You likely already Want it. What you want, though, is a reputable dealer with advice based on experience and a complete range of coins and bullion so you get what you want at the best value. That's going to come from the Midas Gold Group. They're veteran-owned and proud supporters of this show right here on 960 AM, The Patriot, and they're fighting for your right to the financial privacy and stability that gold offers. Trust the dealer that I and Sebastian Gorka and thousands of you already know and trust, and that is the Midas Gold Group. Visit them in person at 625 West Deer Valley Road in Phoenix or call them at 480-360-3000. That's 480-360-3000 or check them out online at MidasGoldGroup.com, MidasGoldGroup.com. They're they're just great guys over there, great people, Uh, veteran-owned. I think I mentioned that, but, yeah, worth mentioning again. Um. I don't know. You know, it's a funny thing. I had Bill Bennett on the other day on the show, and he was saying, you know, he's promoting his 30th anniversary of the Book of Virtues. And it's funny when when you interview Bill and and some others, they they often will talk about every other book but their own. And uh, and, uh, it's the publishers and the publicists don't like it, but it's intellectually honest when you talk about, you know, what – 
where you where where you pick up so much of your of your other thinking and and recommending smart things to people even if they didn't come from your mouth or pen and I often will do the same um I don't write as much as he does but with radio uh if I I often find myself recommending listening to the to certain interviews or certain things Dennis Prager says and uh, if you didn't catch his interview with Marcel and Elenajad uh today Please do so. Uh, you may have seen her on TV here and there. She's the activist, the Iranian-American activist who is doing so much to help garner and, um, and, and gather support and promote the protests that are taking place in her uh, country of birth, Iran, a country she has been exiled from. And um, it, it's a tremendous interview. I think it's if it's not an hour, it's 40 minutes or 45 minutes. It's well worth your time, uh, however you get the Prager Show, Pragertopia, you name it. According to civil rights activists, I'm reading from the Washington Institute right now, over 458 civilians have been killed in the protests in Iran so far, including 70 teenagers and children. 18,000 people have been arrested. She outlines a series of things America could really do to show some leadership on this. And uh, for a left and liberal leadership in the White House that claims to be on the side of the people, that claims to be on the side of women's rights, um, they're not doing a damn thing. They're not doing a damn thing. It's odd that, isn't it, odd that uh, the, support, the, the protesters in Iran are getting more support from conservatives than from liberals. Uh, really odd. Probably has something to do with the anti-Americanism of the leadership and the liberalism of the people to find people in Iran. There is a difference between the government and the people. It's not a difference this government understands. I hope it's a difference this movement does. Sam Stone coming up. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 